0: That I dream an angel. He took my hand, he called my name, he made me look the other way. I saw a If I'd be lifted up, I'll draw all men to me. He turned and then I saw the nails God hands that bled for me. I touched the hem of his garment that fell I life, my heart, I gave my soul was in his care. When I awoke, my heart beat so, and in the dark, I saw a This was no dream
1: about Calvary and what the Lord has done, our hearts are always touched. This morning we are going to talk about one of the most beautiful verses in all scripture. It's found in Psalms 85 and verse 10. Mercy and truth are met together Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. You know, the act of a kiss in the light of divine love speaks to our hearts of a most sacred experience, so deep, so vast, that it's beyond our human conception. And so this morning, let us analyze the difference between mercy and truth let's start with the word truth God declares in his word that truth is the righteousness of God's law Psalms 119 142 thy righteousness is an everlasting righteousness thy law is truth so righteous truth is one of the qualities of our eternal God We know from reading the scriptures that God is holy, Romans 7.24, and the law is holy. In Psalms 119.17, we find that the law is perfect, and so is God perfect. We read in the scripture that God is just, and in Romans 7.12, the law is just. In the Bible, we find that God is pure. In Psalms uh, Psalms 19.8, the commandment of the Lord is pure. We read that God is forever. And we find that the servant of the Lord has told us that the Ten Commandments are that way. For we read in Psalms 8, the commandments are sure they stand fast forever and ever. And so it's no wonder that in The Story of Redemption, page 19, we read, God exalted them equal to himself. That is why in Bible Commentary 1, page 1104, it says, The ten holy precepts spoken by Christ upon Sinai's mount were the revelation of the character of God. So the law is the righteousness of God himself, his very law. This is why we find that when we speak of truth, we understand it to be God's law. Now let's examine the other quality mentioned, for it said mercy and truth. Our text says this, And we find in scripture that there's no clearer discernment of mercy than in what Jesus did on Calvary, the grace of God, in which he died for you and me that we might live. Peter was so impressed with this that he wrote in 1 Peter 3.18, Christ also hath once suffered for our sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Again, in 1 Peter 1.18, ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, but with the precious blood of Christ. There's not a man on this earth, there's not an angel in heaven that could pay the penalty for our sins. Only Jesus could save a rebellious individual. Why? Because in him divinity and humanity were combined. And this is what made the cross possible. I think it's very beautiful how Ellen White put it all together in Bible Echo 315, 1893. I read, At the cross, mercy and truth met together. Righteousness and peace kissed each other. As the sinner looks upon the Savior dying on Calvary, this great sacrifice, he realizes that the sufferer is divine, and he asks, why? Why? Why this great sacrifice was made, and the cross points to the holy law of God, which has been been transgressed. The death of Christ is an unanswerable argument to the immutability and righteousness of the law. And so in this verse, we have it put before us, righteousness, mercy, and grace. We have it all put together for us that they kissed each other. But the law cannot save. It only points out our defects and leads us to Christ, who becomes our our substitute. And Jesus meets the need of the sinner in this. For he tells us in Isaiah 53, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisements of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Once more from Bible Echoes, the same page, The Lord could have cut off the sinner and utterly destroyed him. But the more costly... Notice those words now. The more costly plan was chosen. In his great love, he provides hope for the hopeless, giving his only begotten son to bear the sins of the world. And since he had poured out all heaven in that one rich gift, he will withhold from man no needed aid, that he may take the cup of salvation and become an heir of God, a joint error with Christ. How beautiful then is our verse, mercy, the costly gift called grace and truth, God's righteous law, are met together for righteousness and peace have kissed each other. That just really touches your heart in a a very emotional way. You see, the law in grace had to be separate qualities in order to meet together. At the cross, they kissed each other, revealing that they are inseparably joined together in wedlock. This is brought out very clearly in God's amazing grace, page 74. Christ showed that in God's plan they are indissolubly joined together. The one cannot exist without the other. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. So the love of God, His grace, does not do away with the divine law. You see, if God was only love and all of His attributes or His qualities could be reduced to love, there would be no need for the atonement because there are conditions that come with the costly gift. Justice demands holiness and mercy opens the gates of eternal life to the obedient. This is written to us in Revelation 22.14 Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have a right to the tree of life, and may enter in through the gates into the city. This costly grace, so wonderful, is being undermined today by a new cheap theology called cheap grace. It's invading every Protestant church in the world, including the Seventh-day Adventist church. And that's why I'm speaking about it today. This cheap grace is making possible the new world order. Now I'm sure that some of you back there are immediately sitting up and saying, Brother Nelson, how in the world could you make such an impossible assumption that the new world order is being formed and will develop and come and ripen and be a reality because of cheap grace. Well now you just listen to me. You remember Hitler some years ago attempted a new world order. But he found that he had a great difficulty. You see, the Lutheran people were the majority in Germany and because of this they stood in his way. These members believed in costly grace. They believed what Martin Luther had taught them, the great Protestant reformer, that costly grace demanded full and complete obedience to only God. So this was difficult for Hitler in trying to get the people to obey a very sinful and evil new government. So what did he do? He joined hands with the Catholic Church, history reveals this, and together they began to preach to the Lutheran people cheap grace. That when it would be accepted, it would take the place of costly grace and would secure the submission of the German people to a human government that was evil. For cheap grace teaches that Jesus kept the law for you and you don't have to keep it anymore. Now God did not leave the German people in darkness. He raised up a man by the name of Bonhoeffer, a sincere, true Christian. He realized the results of cheap grace, that it would turn people from the discipleship of Christ to Hitler. And so he wrote a book, The Cost of Discipleship, which I'm going to quote from you from pages 57 to 59. Listen to this. He's speaking. We Lutherans have gathered like eagles around the carcass of cheap grace. And there we have drunk of the poison which which has killed the life of following Christ. He continues. We justified the world and condemned as heretics those who tried to follow Christ. And what was the cost, he tells you? He says it was terrible. Cheap grace, I'm quoting, won the day. And uh, recently, a top theologian of the Lutheran Church by the name of Hans Kang, a theologian, uh, wrote a book on the third millennium in which he stated, both liberal neo protestantism <clears throat> and Roman Catholicism had ultimately come to terms in an uncritical, conformist manner with the dominant and political system. And so cheap grace made it possible for those Germans who were dedicated to Jesus Christ to see in Hitler a new Luther. And they accepted his teachings because of cheap grace. I'm reading again from Bonhoeffer. This cheap grace has been no less disastrous to the spiritual individual life. Instead of opening up the way to Christ, it closed it. Instead of calling us to follow Christ, it hardened us in disobedience. We were told, listen to this, that our salvation had already been accomplished by the grace of God. Having once laid hold of cheap grace, we were barred forever from the knowledge of costly grace. Deceived and weakened, men felt that they were strong now that they were in possession of cheap grace, whereas they had in fact lost the power to live the life of discipleship and obedience. And this is exactly what any true historic Adventist sees in the new theology of cheap grace that is trying to find its way within the Church today. What did Hitler do about Bonhoeffer? He had to get rid of him because the Lutheran Church was following Christ in obedience and would not submit to a Nazi government and so he had him executed without a trial by his black SS guards. And that same request for submission is going to once more come to America as this time the devil will develop a new world order when he demands for everyone to do something contrary to God's law. And it will be very easy because God's law is no longer binding. They have been taught that they are under grace, that they don't have to be any more a believer in obedience. And Satan is trying his best to implant this same cheap grace within the Seventh-day Adventist church. Because he knows this is the only church that is going to stand out and say no. This is why I am preaching this sermon today to let you know exactly what is happening, how cheap grace is taking hold, and many thousands of God's people are being misled. Let me read to you from Desire of Ages, page 672, that cheap grace actually destroys that wonderful wedlock between mercy and truth that kissed each other. Listen, God's love has been expressed in his justice no less than in his mercy. Justice is the foundation of his throne the fruit of his love, but it has been Satan's purpose to divorce mercy from truth. So he sought to prove that the righteousness of God's law is an enemy to peace. But Christ showed that in God's plan they were indissolubly joined together. The one cannot exist without the other. For mercy and truth are met together, and righteousness and peace have kissed each other. By his life and his death, Christ proved that God's justice did not destroy his mercy, but that sin could be forgiven, and that the law is righteous, and can be perfectly obeyed. But Satan is coming along now with a very charming new belief. It's very disarming in its approach, this cheap doctrine of grace, and he mixes it with error. He takes that costly grace And he mixes it with his deadly error. You know Satan loves to have every church in this land preach the love of God. He likes them to emphasize instant justification. He likes for them to talk about the cross. He wants them to put it in every church, on every steeple, everywhere. He wants them to wear it around their neck. He doesn't care if you dwell upon the mercies of God, but he wants you to ignore God's righteousness and his justice and obedience. If he can just get the ministers to preach only half of salvation truth, he can fill the church. And this we have seen in our celebration churches today. Such preaching ignores or minimizes sanctification. The high priest's ministry of Christ in the heavenly sanctuary and the justice of God in demanding absolute obedience. And so I tell you this morning, beware, beware, beware of any preacher who preaches only half the truth, for it opens the door to a deadly Doctrine such as you don't have to keep the law anymore because Jesus kept it for you. Therefore, we are no longer to live under the law because we are now under grace. And here is we're going to talk about a book. Again, Beyond Belief which is being promoted by the General Conference in a mighty way today, I want to tell you that it is a perfect example of NLP. Never in all of my studies as I have been out in evangelism preaching to the people of the world the difference that God would have us know in the law and grace doctrine nlp comes along and secretly and very quietly implants within your mind these deadly errors not so long ago i had one of the ministers of our denomination who had taken nlp sit in my room in my home and i want to tell you i watched him carefully NLP, you know, is a form of leading to hypnotism. And I declared I was not going to come under it. You see, in the first two or three courses that were developed and taught by the greatest hypnotist that's living in the world today, of which all our Adventist ministers are encouraged to take, it teaches them you sit down and if they cross your arms, you cross your arms. If they put their hand up to ear, you do it. And you sit there and you breathe in the same cadence as they do. These are all the terms, I could go on for an hour and talk about this, that lead to their ability to hypnotize you and place within your mind that which they want you to believe so that they can control you. And that is exactly what this book does. Now if the deacons will quickly pass out. Up the aisle please. I want you to see this as I read it to you. I don't want you to just listen to me this morning. I want to give it to you. And as these are, take, just take one and pass it out. Do it quickly so that we can... Go ahead and uh, each one have it. Just take one of them. If there's more than seven in the aisle, I'll share it with you. And if there are any left over, leave them in the pew so that those who get a tape of this message this morning can send this out with your tape. This is very important. There are two sheets. I asked a little counsel before I did this, I said I'd like to save a little time in passing this out and they said well if you do it before church why they're human and they'll spend the time reading this while you're preaching this morning. So I'm holding it up now until you all have it. And I'm going to begin reading the first parts. This is not all the teaching of cheap grace but I want you to see that there are nine distinct teachings of cheap grace in this book. I'm going to read the first nine and you can look at them. 1. That sanctification is not a requirement for heaven. Now now, now just think what this book is teaching. That all babies are born guilty of Adam's sin, therefore Jesus was born with the unfallen nature of Adam, which is a Catholic doctrine taught by St. Augustine. Three. That cheap grace does away with obedience to God's law as essential to salvation. 4. That we may obtain advance forgiveness, the Catholic doctrine of indulgences. 5. That it is legalism to believe or to teach obedience. 6. That salvation was completed on the cross. Therefore, there is no need for Jesus to intercede for us in the heavenly sanctuary, nor is there need for an investigative judgment and the blotting out of our sins. 7. That we are no longer under the law, but under grace. 8. That we can sin without punishment. 9 that sabbath keeping is nothing but a work as a requirement of salvation. Now I want to tell you I have never read a book like this from our presses before. Now the question follows down below does this book cheap, t- uh, teach this cheap grace doctrine? Well I've got the page from the book and I've written enough so that I'm not giving you just a sentence but a paragraph. Page 32, you'll notice right there, we're going to read it. We often describe the first aspect of salvation, the objective gospel, as the imputed righteousness of Christ. This is what qualifies the believer for heaven, both now and in the judgment. We describe the second aspect of salvation, the subjective gospel, as the imparted righteousness of Christ. This is what gives evidence of the reality of the imputed righteousness of Christ in the life. It does not contribute in the slightest way to our qualification for heaven. It witnesses or demonstrates What is already true of us in Christ, imparted righteousness, does not qualify us for heaven. Now let's talk about this. First of all, you notice he uses some terms you will never find in the Bible. What is that? You will find it the subjective and the objective gospel. That's foreign to the Bible. But let's go on. We describe the second aspect, it says, as the imparted righteousness. So we're talking about the imparted righteousness of cross. And what does it say? It does not contribute in the slightest way to our qualification for heaven. I read here from messages to young people. It says here, The righteousness by which we are justified is imputed. The righteousness by which we are sanctified is imparted. The first is our title to heaven. The second is our fitness for heaven. What does it say? It says here that in no way does it qualify us. He is taking away our very fitness for heaven in this kind of teaching here. As you read on, you will find that this kind of attack is really against obedience. For I read in First Selected Messages, number 1, 367, that righteousness is obedience. So he is telling us you don't have to obey. It has no significance with God. It has nothing to do in qualifying you for heaven. Let's go on. Two, that cheap grace teaches the Catholic doctrine of the original sin. Well, let's read the quotations here and see. By one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. Did Paul mean that all die because all have sinned, personally, as did Adam, or? did he mean that all die because all have sinned in Adam it simply isn't true that everyone dies because they have personally sinned as Adam did all have sinned most naturally refers to a single past heretical event historical event adam's sin and not in the continuing personal sins of his descendants over the centuries. Sinful man is not lost because he has committed sins, but because he is without Christ, that is to say because he is born of Adam, and therefore already stands condemned in him even before he commits sins of his own. I want to tell you that is absolutely nothing but the Catholic doctrine of the original sin. I don't worship a God that condemns me for something that I had never had anything I could do about. You remember what the scripture has said about this? Let me read it to you. The soul that sinneth, it, it shall die. I'm reading. Ezekiel 18.20 The Son shall not bear the iniquity of the Father. That's the kind of a God I like. Brothers and sisters, one of the basic principles of cheap grace is it must be built upon the Catholic doctrine of the original sin. Because you see, it teaches that when Christ came, he didn't come to this earth as you and I. He came in the unfallen of Adam, and that's why he could overcome, but you and I cannot do this because we weren't born that way, and neither was Jesus that way. So you can't follow Jesus. He is not our example because he overcame differently from you and I. It's very basic that we understand what this book is teaching. Now, I want to be honest with you that on page 54, he contradicts what he says here. And on a page 146, he says just the opposite. What is he doing? He's using NLP. He has implanted within you a error. And then later on, he says, no, I didn't say that at all. But he implanted it in your mind. And this is what we find takes place when we become involved with hypnotism. Number three, cheap grace, what does it say, number three, cheap grace does away with obedience to God's law as essential for salvation. Page 91. If a person does not believe that full and complete salvation has already been obtained in Jesus Christ, if a person believes that salvation ultimately depends on some degree of his or her behavior, then the faith such a person is able to generate will naturally be polluted with self-concern. Now what is behavior anyway? Behavior is obedience or disobedience. So you see what he is telling you? If you believe that your obedience has anything to do with your salvation, you're being polluted and that word means you are a sinner. Now let's think these things through. But obedience is the very heart of the great controversy. Obedience is the condition to which eternal life is granted. Let me read this to you in Christ Object Lessons, page 391. Christ does not lessen the claims of the law. In unmistakable language, he presents obedience to it as the condition of eternal life, the same condition that was required of Adam before he fell. The Lord expects no less of the soul now Then he expected of man in paradise, perfect obedience, unblemished righteousness. So you see again, he is attacking obedience. This is why you see this new cheap grace philosophy is, oh, we have found something wonderful. You don't have to do anything anymore. There's no hassle. You don't have to pray for victory. You don't have to overcome any temptations. Jesus did it all for you on the cross. So let's celebrate. Get out the drums. Let's have an exciting time together. That's what it's all about. No more hassle. No more praying. No more getting on your knees. No more pleading with God for victory. Jesus did it all. Cheap grace, number four. Cheap grace teaches the Catholic doctrine of indulgences. Page 103. Justification is the work of a moment, although it remains effective in all our believing lives. I'm quoting on now from the same, right underneath, common misunderstandings. Now what he's going to say, he says, I don't believe in, justification by faith refers only to the forgiveness of past sins. Now he says, that's a misunderstanding. It's true that one important truth about justification is the forgiveness of our past sins, but justification involves far more than that. The righteousness of Christ includes the fact that he endured the just penalty of the law on behalf of our sins, past, present, and future. But in a positive sense, Christ also kept the whole law on our behalf. All this becomes ours the moment we are justified by faith. Justification means all of Christ's righteousness that he provided for us so that nothing more is required of us to qualify for heaven. You don't have to do a thing. Just believe. But getting back to this, if this is true, that God forgives us for future sins, And it's true if we repent, if we're sorrowful, we ask forgiveness. See, there's a half a truth here. But here he tells us that already he has forgiven us of future sins. And that's the same as going to the priest and saying, look, I want to steal $500 from that place. I know it's wrong. And the priest says, that's all right. You give me some, so much money and I'll give you an indulgence. And I'll forgive you before you do it. And this is exactly what this is teaching. So you can see this is opening the door to Sunday keeping. When the threat comes. Of persecution. Because Jesus already paid the penalty. You're not under the law anymore. You can sin. And it's already forgiven. So go ahead and keep Sunday. Do you see what this is leading to? Am I making it clear? You be the judge. Number five. Cheap grace teaches that it is legalism to believe in obedience. Page 104. The devil has deceived many Christians into believing that justification by faith does not fully qualify them for heaven, that something more is necessary. Who's who's this doing? This is the devil. That they must, what? Keep the law. And do good works. Now that is a tremendous statement. So when I, as a preacher here, am preaching that you must have obedience, I'm teaching the devil's doctrine. That's what he's saying here. As a result, many sincere Christians are trapped in a subtle form of legalism. Oh! So he takes this dirty word that has become a part today that they always throw up. Don't talk about the law, just talk about the love. But I want to tell you, If that's legalism, then God was the greatest legalist that ever existed, because he gave the law. And Jesus Christ believed in legalism, for he kept the law, and he preached others to be obedient. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. We mustn't get carried away with some of these terms that are being thrown up in cheap grace. As a result, many Christians are trapped in a subtle form of legalism. Living in fear and insecurity, every time we fall or sin, we become unjustified. This is another common misunderstanding about justification. It is a monstrous teaching. What's this? That has no support from the Word of God. God does not reject us every time we make a mistake or fall into sin. What? if I only believe I can go ahead and I can steal I can commit adultery with my neighbor's wife I can do anything and what I fall into these sins and God doesn't reject me now you see when you talk about rejection God still loves the sinner and he wants the sinner to be saved and so he pleads with him but this doesn't mean that he doesn't reject the sinner. Let's look at David. When David took and committed adultery and then killed the husband, was he rejected of God? You better believe he was. It wasn't until the Lord because of his love sent that prophet in and told him you are the man and When David saw his sin, what did he do? He fell on his knees and he pleaded with God for forgiveness, but he was lost during that time and Again, you remember when Peter denied his Lord What did the Lord say to him get thee behind me Satan? There was a moment there an hour Two hours when Peter was not in the loving, tender, you might say, relationship with God. He broke it. He had been rejected. Listen to First first one, Selected Messages 3.66. In order for man to retain his justification, there must be continual obedience. You know, the Sister White brings it out so clear. It just makes it so straight. There must be continual obedience through active, living faith that works by love and purifies the soul. All right, let's turn to the next one, six. What does it say? It is legalism to believe, I'm sorry, that salvation was completed on the cross. Therefore, there is no need for Jesus to intercede for us in the heavenly sanctuary, nor is there need for an investigated judgment and the blotting out of sins. My, I wish I could preach a whole hour about that. What does he say? And this is all he says in this book about the sanctuary. The sanctuary of the Old Testament was divided into three parts, the courtyard, the holy place, and the most holy place. Likewise, the believer who represents God's temple on earth is divided into three parts, spirit, spiritually, spirit, soul, and body. Now where did he ever get, concoct such an idea? There is a heavenly sanctuary, and Jesus Christ is in the heavenly sanctuary. Let me read it, Hebrews 9.24. For Christ is not entered into the Holy is, not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. What is he doing up there? Why, he is presenting us to the Father as though we had never sinned. He is blotting out our sins. Here is the investigative judgment. This is all done away with. If you believe that everything was completed at the cross and that's what Ford teaches cheap grace in Review and Herald volume 4 137 we are told this is one of the points on which there will be a departing from the faith and it's coming I listened to a tape personally where one of our ministers recently said, I don't believe in the sanctuary anymore. And so you see, they have done away with it. Why? Because it teaches sanctification. It teaches obedience. We must plead with God for strength and power to overcome. That's all done away with. Sanctification doesn't qualify you for heaven if you believe cheap grace. Number seven, cheap grace, what does it say? There is no longer under the law, but under grace. Careful now. If you're not under God's authority, whose authority are you under? Now you think that through. Let me read 163. According to Paul, it is impossible for someone who truly understands salvation by grace and who appreciates Christ's cross, to go on condoning sin. Righteousness is by faith, and if the faith is there, the righteousness is sure to be there as well, and there is no sin in righteousness. But that sin no longer has authority to condemn or to control a believer because such a person is no longer under the law control but under grace you see what he's doing finally he is throwing the law out the window a believer is no longer under the law's authority sin can no longer bring about the believer the law's condemnation of eternal death the believer is delivered from the power of sin There is a world of difference between sinning under the law and sinning under the grace. Who said so? Does the Bible say that? That's what all these churches have been teaching for years, that it was sin in the Old Testament, but when Christ came, the law was done away with. Do you see what this is bringing in? I want to tell you, you have to be on your knees, you have to be studying, you have to think, Today, if you are going to read these kind of books, because they will lead you out of the kingdom. You say, in this sense, the law and Christ different radically. Oh, no, they don't. The very character of my Lord is his law. Cheap grace divorces the righteousness from grace. And God said they have kissed each other. And let no man put them asunder number eight cheap grace teaches that I can sin without punishment I can lose my temper I can curse I can swear I can even damn God that's what it says here let's read it stumbling under grace falling into sin does not deprive us of justification, neither does it bring condemnation. Did you ever hear Sister White write like that? Did you ever read anything in the Bible like that? This is Calvinism. Once saved, always saved. Once you believe, you can do anything you want. Then it talks about the law as a standard But may I remind you that standards change, but God's law doesn't. How should we Christians view the law? Is it still binding on us? The answer is emphatically no. The law is not binding on us as a means of salvation. But the answer is most definite yes, if you are speaking of the law as a standard for Christian living. But standards change. But God doesn't. Why doesn't he come out and preach it like it is? And let me tell you, the law is a means of salvation, for I read in Psalms 19, 17, the law of the Lord is perfect, what? Converting the soul. It shows us our guilt, it shows us our need, and so it guides us to one who can help us. It leads us to Christ. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. If the law is no longer but only a good standard, why the hassle today? Why do we need to get on our knees and plead with God for victory over these things that we know are contrary to him because he's coming soon? You do away with it all. You can celebrate. Only believe, there is no condemnation, neither does it bring condemnation. And number nine, cheap grace teaches that Sabbath keeping, well, is nothing but works as a requirement for salvation. 183 When we make Sabbath keeping a requirement of salvation, what did he say? Blessed are they that do his commandments that they may have a right when it says we are not entering into rest at all. We are not pointing to a finished, complete salvation. No sanctuary. You don't have to worry about sinning anymore. You're not under condemnation anymore. It was all done at the cross. Instead, we are turning the Sabbath into the very opposite of what God intended it to be, what was it? Last Sabbath, I said in read. it is a sign of your sanctification. Such Sabbath keeping is meaningless. So he's doing away. He's, he's preparing the way for you to break the Sabbath day. If Sabbath keeping is legalistic and God doesn't require it, salvation for salvation, and you come to believe this, you will find it very easy in the coming days of persecution to say, why the hassle? The government says I ought to keep Sunday. So what? God has already forgiven me for the future sins that I commit. So I'll keep it. And I'll get along and I'll be able to buy and I'll be able to sell. I think the following quotation, which is not in the paper, it says there are two opposing methods of salvation. That's page 185. And this I totally agree with. And you do too. For there is the truth and there is the counterfeit. One leads you to heaven, the other leads to hell. Pure and simple. Never forget the words of Christ. If ye love me, Keep my commandments. That is why Ellen White wrote these words in First Selected Messages, 367, righteousness is obedience to the law, and no one will go to heaven without righteousness. And that righteousness comes from that divine power of Christ. And so cheap grace destroys the beautiful relationship that we were listening to as we read that verse mercy and truth have met each other and they have kissed each other don't let anybody try to break that relationship in your life between truth uh, between grace and the law of God this book as far as I am concerned is a book that will prepare you to receive the mark of the least, if you believe it. The Lord told us that in the last days, new books would come off of our presses containing the doctrines of devils. We're in that time. Brothers and sisters, we're in the end of time. This is a time for us to take hold of the Bible and study it, for it's our only guide. Let's hold fast to these truths. Don't let the pillars that you have learned through the past years be taken away. Let us be faithful to God. Let us hold fast that we may be ready to meet him when he comes. Loving Father, Lord, we should take courage today as we see these things Because we know we're in the end. And Lord, our hearts reach out for the thousands and the tens of thousands who are being misled today by cheap grace. Oh God, help us that we will not be misled in the coming New World Order to believe we can follow evil because we are no longer under the law, but under grace help us god by faith to hold on to thy hand and to be obedient we ask in jesus name amen